The single most mystifying aspect of Donahue's representation was his failure to present Oscar's alibi and discuss the impossibility of the state's timeline. Powell, on the other hand, presented four alternate timelines to the jury at closing. Now, let's assume that he, and he continues, as I've pointed out, or tried to point out, he has to take a little bit of truth and raise some lies from it, and then try to make it grow into this reasonable doubt that we have been talking about. But let's assume that he gets to the place up at Sequoia Field, the Roberts residence, sometime around three, that maybe a little before three, maybe a little after. Powell has to agree to this because he can't discredit Gene Owen's testimony or his signed statement from December 31st, 1975. He's going to then travel from there to Woodlake. Again, a few minutes either way will put him in Woodlake within a reasonable estimate of the Brumley family. The distance, as you will recall, as I've put down the minutes, and by the way, you will remember that when Mr. Bird testified, when he did these, he drove about 30 miles an hour. He wasn't going 60 and all that sort of thing. But you will remember that it took about 23 minutes to go from the Roberts residence over to Woodlake to the Brumley house. And then it took about 15 minutes to go from the Brumley house down to Gloria Muscoro. And then it took about one minute to go to the bicycle scene where he abducted Donna Jo Richmond. From there... It took eight minutes to the location where her body was found. And from there, it takes 12 minutes to go where he threw out her Kotex, panties, and sanitary belt. From there, it takes one minute to go to the green pants where he threw them out. And it takes another minute to go to the first shoe. And then three minutes to the second shoe. And three minutes to his house. And if my math is right, it took a total of 67 minutes to do that traveling. Here's what Powell laid out in version one. Three o'clock, leaves Roberts Owens in North Visalia. 3.23, arrives Woodlake, apparently drives directly to Beth Brumley, speaks with her, and drives off. 3.25, departs Woodlake. 3.40, arrives at Spruce and List, walks over to Muscoro, flashes her, drives through the groves to the bike scene. 341, arrives at bike scene and kidnaps Donna, wipes all fingerprints off of her bike, invoice, and unidentified notepad, and departs scene. 349, arrives Neil Ranch, no time stated for the homicide. 401, arrives at panty scene. 402, drops pants in road. 403, places one shoe on its sole off the road. 406, places second shoe on its sole off the road. 409, arrives at residence. This version of Powell's story has several insurmountable problems. Number one, Brumley and her mother both testified that she returned home at 3 o'clock, not 3.30. Mrs. Brumley insisted that it could not have been any later than 3.15 p.m. Based on Powell's stated drive time of 23 minutes, driving directly to the spot where Beth was walking with no wasted turns, Beth could not have been home before 3.25. Number two, Powell left exactly one minute from the time he said that Oscar arrived at Spruce and List to the time Powell said that the kidnapper arrived at the bike scene. Testimony was that the plain white truck drove by Moscoro going west on List, then 
five minutes later back going east. The truck then turned north on Spruce, and a few minutes later, after Gloria walked back from the road into the grove, she encountered the driver flashing her. She then went over and told her father, who said he walked out to Spruce, saw the truck, went and got in his truck, and tried to chase it. Presuming all of that, including the big circular drive back to the bike scene, you need to add at least 10 minutes after the flasher first arrived on list before he could be at the bike scene. Not one minute, as Powell stated. Number three, Gloria clearly placed the flashing incident right at 3.30. She said she heard the radio say that it was 3.30 and then walked back into the grove and saw the man. Giving time for the two truck sightings prior to that, the white truck could not have first arrived at Spruce and List any later than 3.25. This is 15 minutes earlier than Powell could get Oscar there. Number four, Powell left zero minutes for the suspect to kidnap Donna, wipe all the fingerprints off of her bike, the invoice book, and the unidentified notepad, and leave the scene. Number five, Powell had Donna being kidnapped at the bike scene at 341, at least four minutes before she left Don Lee's house over four miles away. TCSO timed that ride at 25 minutes, placing Donna there no earlier than 410, That's a difference of 29 minutes. Number six, two of Bird's drive times cited by Powell are short. Bird timed the trip between the bike scene and Neal Ranch at 9 minutes 20 seconds, and the trip from Neal Ranch to the Clifton residence was timed at 21 minutes. This adds a total of 2 minutes 20 seconds to the total drive time. Number seven, Powell did not give a time for killing Donna at Neal Ranch, wiping down the inside of the vehicle to remove fingerprints, hairs, blood, and mud, or cleaning up the blood and mud from hands, under fingernails, clothes, and the knife. Number eight. Powell did not leave any time for stopping and placing the shoes off the road on their soles. In that drive time version, Oscar arrived home at 4.09. That's one minute before the earliest time that Donna could have arrived at the bike scene. Presumably, the jury was meant to infer that the 36 minutes until Carter said Oscar arrived home were used for the murder and cleanup. It's clear to see that by offering that Donna was kidnapped 29 minutes before she could have actually arrived at the bike scene, leaving zero minutes for the Mascaro incident and Donna's kidnapping, and cutting more than two minutes from the drive, Powell changed the negative 10 minutes for the murder and cleanup into 36 minutes. Powell then gave the jury a second reverse version. Well, let's give Mr. Clifton the benefit of the doubt. Let's believe what he says. And for the moment when he says, I left the Roberts residence at 3. If he left at 3 p.m., from 3 p.m., if you add 67 minutes, that would make it 4.07 p.m. And we know he got home by his own admission about 4.40 4.45, according to the fellow that lived with him. We know he got home about then. Well, if you have 4.45, take away that seven minutes, that leaves you 38 minutes unaccounted for. The 38 minutes that it would take him, you can divide this 38 minutes any way you like it, that would give him 38 minutes to grab the girl off the bicycle, kidnap her. We're counting travel time, so you don't have to worry about travel time. He grabs her and then how long would it take him to grab her 
after getting her knocked over on the bicycle, be generous, five minutes, six minutes, he's still got 32 minutes in which to disrobe her, to ejaculate on her, to choke her, and to stab her, and to leave her to die. He's got adequate time to do all those things. The second version more clearly relies on Carter's change statement and Oscar arriving home at 4.45. This version subtracts the total drive time from the Roberts-Owens at 3 o'clock to Oscar arriving home, but of course at least 21 minutes of that drive would have occurred after Donna was killed, so although the time of 4.07 appears meaningful, it's dangerously misleading. 4.45 minus 21 minutes of driving time, no time to place the shoes off the road, has Oscar leaving Neil Ranch at 4.24. The 32 minutes Powell claimed was spent on Neil Ranch would take that back to 3.52. Minus the 9 minutes from the bike scene to Neil Ranch is 3.43. The 5 to 6 minutes Powell gives for the kidnapping, and now we're back to 3.38 for Donna arriving at the bike scene. That's 7 minutes before she left Don Lee's house. Powell told the jury that Donna was in two places at the same time. Donahue didn't object, asked the judge to strike the statements, or even address it in his own closing arguments. We've said it before, and we're saying it again. Donahue was seriously compromised by the end of the trial, and was either working directly with the prosecution, or just stopped working for Oscar. A corrected timeline for Powell's version, based on the testimony of the Brumleys, Mascoros, and Don Lee, plus the statements of Donna's friends and TCSO McKinney Bird's drive and bike ride times, as presented in their reports and testimony, would look more like 3 to 3.15. 3 o'clock. Oscar leaves Robert's Owens. Beth Brumley arrives at her home after seeing Truckman. 3.23. Oscar arrives Woodlake. 3.25. 3.25. Oscar departs Woodlake. Flasher's truck first spotted at Spruce and List. Drives back and forth, goes around, walks to spot in Grove, flashes Mascaro. 3.40. Oscar arrives at Spruce and List. 3.45. Drives in a circle back to bike scene. Donna leaves Don Lee's house. 3.50. Oscar arrives and departs the bike scene. 4 o'clock. Oscar arrives Neil Ranch. 4.10. Donna arrives at bike scene. Oscar has been gone from the scene for 20 minutes and is halfway to his residence from Neil Ranch. 21-minute drive. Arrives at residence at 4.21. Before the jury had time to process this reverse story, Powell immediately offered a third version. If you want to start counting time from the bicycle scene where he kidnapped her, if you want to start counting time from there and say it was about 4 o'clock when he caught her, then if you take off the first two, we would be these two, then you're going to end up with 29 minutes in which to pull her off the bicycle and do all those horrible things in the orange grove. I submit to you Mr. Clifton had adequate time to do what the people contend he did on December 26th. This third version assumes Donna left Don Lee's at 345, which Don said was the earliest, and then made the ride in 15 minutes, 10 minutes less than TCSO's own ride time. Additionally, there's no explanation for where the suspect is between 341, Powell's first version, and 4 o'clock. In this version, Powell says... Four o'clock, Donna is kidnapped. The suspect wipes bike, invoice book, and notepad of prints. 4.05, departs bike scene. 4.14, arrives and departs Neil Ranch. 
435, minimum drive time to residence. Assuming Carter's changed arrival time home of 445, that leaves 10 minutes for removing Donna's clothing in the vehicle, killing her, removing all trace of Donna, the crime and the groves from the vehicle, cleaning up his hands and face, clothing and knife, wiping fingerprints off Donna's shoes and placing them carefully on their soles off the road. However, if you subtract the extra 10 minutes for the actual bike ride time, you're left with zero minutes. The only documented bike ride time was done by Bird's 15-year-old son, Jerry. That was timed at 25 minutes. Bird also referenced that ride in his July 8, 1976 drive time report. There was no evidence gathered in the case or presented at trial that Donna could have made the ride faster than Jerry. That idea is also inconsistent with her dressy pants, high-platform shoes, and her other ride times that same day. Carol and Donna rode from Heidi Weissenberger's house to Judy Stewart's house in 40 to 50 minutes, a distance of 1.92 miles. Carol, Donna, and Judy then rode to Don Lee's house in between 20 to 30 minutes, a distance of about 1.8 miles. The ride from Don Lee's to the bike scene is 4.13 miles. There is absolutely no evidence that Donna could have or did ride that distance faster than Jerry Bird's 25 minutes. In fact, that would be twice as fast as any other segment she rode that day. So, if you believe Carter's first polygraph statement, which placed Oscar home at 4.15, or the testimony of his daughters at around 4.30, the girls were sitting on the floor and didn't see Oscar drive up or put away the tools in the garage. Then there is no time for the driving, let alone a kidnapping and murder. It's important to remember exactly what happened to Rick Carter on December 27th and 28th. Not long after midnight on the 27th, he was sleeping in the Clifton's living room when TCSO arrived, handcuffed him, and arrested him for investigation of kidnapping. Placed into a police car in the driveway and questioned by Byrd and Chamberlain. He was then transported to the sheriff's station in Visalia, and he gave his story in a taped interview. He was then given a polygraph exam on that statement, which found him to be truthful, and he was released. That statement said that Oscar arrived home at 4.15 p.m. Later that Saturday afternoon, when TCSO returned to the Clifton residence to arrest Oscar for Donna's murder, they transported Carter back to the sheriff's station for another round of questioning at 5.45 p.m. Apparently, he gave another tape statement, which is not contained in the defense files and was never mentioned at trial. TCSO were not happy with that statement, and at 7.30 p.m., they arrested and booked Carter on the charge of homicide. He was then transported to jail for the night. The morning of Sunday, the 28th, Carter was brought back from the jail to the sheriff's station to record a new third statement. TCSO reports show a two-hour gap between the time when the questioning started and when they turned on the tape. It appears that statement finally satisfied TCSO because Carter was immediately released from custody and his pending DUI charge was dropped. At no point did Carter have any legal counsel and he was an 18-year-old high school dropout who could not read. It should be obvious that the third statement was coerced and coached. 
That third tape statement is the one that Powell relied on throughout the trial, and Ward continues to cite today. Testimony of Rick Carter at trial, July 7, 1976. By Mr. Donahue. Mr. Carter, you say that you told Mr. Clifton, that you told the sheriff's office, that he had arrived home at 445. Is that correct? Yes. Do you remember, Mr. Clifton, Mr. Carter rather, that on December the 27th, about 3.30 in the morning, you were questioned by a Detective Chamberlain? Yes. I want to show you a tape, the typed version of that statement, and I ask you to look on page 3, the last two lines, and page 4, the first two lines. Mr. Powell, Your Honor, may we approach the bench a moment? The witness, okay. Whereupon, a brief discussion was had at the bench outside the hearing of the jury and without the reporter. By Mr. Donahue. Mr. Carter, you have difficulty in reading? Yes. All right, with the court's permission then, I will read these few questions to you. Question. Okay, did, uh, did anyone come home after you got there? Answer. Yes, Oscar did. Question. Do you remember about what time that was? Answer. About 4.15. Is that what you told Detective Chamberlain? I can't remember. Well, you remembered a moment ago that it was 4.45. This is the first interview you had with any of these detectives. Do you remember telling him it was 4.15 when Mr. Clifton came home? Like I said, I can't remember. All right. Then you're not sure what time he got home? Is that correct? I didn't say that, did I? What time was it then? About 4.45. Why did you tell Detective Chamberlain it was 4.15? By Mr. Powell. Objection. It's argumentative. The court. Sustained. By Mr. Donahue. Now, on the following day, Mr. Carter, you also had an interview in the sheriff's office with Detective Richard Holguin. Do you remember that? Yes. And that was on the 28th of December, and it was about 11.51. Mr. Powell, could we have the page number, counsel? By Mr. Donahue. Page three. All right, I'll read this to you. See if you can recall it. Question. Okay, so you returned at approximately 3.30 p.m. on Friday the 26th to the Clifton residence. Uh, was there anything special that uh, you were waiting for? Answer. No. Question. Okay, what time did you note Mr. Clifton? I am talking about Oscar Clifton now. What time did you note him to come through the living room door? Answer. 4.15, I mean 4.40 to 4.45, at that time. Is that the answer that you gave? Yes. We've posted a copy of the first tape statement, the one that the polygraph examiner found truthful, in the gallery on our website and Facebook page. We don't have a copy of the transcript of the second or third statements. To our knowledge, the second one was never transcribed, and the transcript of the third statement appears to have been removed from the defense file by DA investigator Deathridge after Donahue's death in 1981, before the file was turned over to Oscar's appellate counsel. The main problem was that they had Carter polygraphed at 5.30 a.m. on the 27th, before TCSO McKinney had a chance to talk to Don Lee or Donna's other friends. They very quickly discovered that Donna leaving Don Lee's at 3.45 and Oscar returning home at 4.15 could not possibly line up. 
On the morning of the 28th, Bird and McKinney followed Jerry Bird on the bike ride from Don Lee's to the bike scene, and the timeline only got worse, with Donna unable to arrive there before 4.10. At that point, it would have been normal to go interview the defense alibi witnesses that Donahue had provided to TCSO, but they didn't. In fact, they didn't interview the Garden Street witnesses until after the trial had already started, on June 22nd through the 24th, 1976. Even worse, TCSO never attempted to drive the route they asserted for Oscar's activities between 3 and 5 p.m. until July 8th, 1976, four days before Powell's closing arguments. Bird and Powell must have been in total meltdown panic when Chamberlain walked in with Brent Trueblood's statement and photo lineup ID of Oscar on June 23rd. What does it say about Powell and Bird's case that their response to Trueblood was to physically hide the tape where it wouldn't be found until six years later? Who would do that? Their sworn duty was to the truth, not to obtaining a conviction at any cost. We would ask how they slept at night, knowing that Oscar was on death row, but we've never seen any indication that Bird or Powell had a moral compass or a conscience, so they probably slept just fine. If they really believed in Oscar's guilt, why not transcribe the tape, give it to the defense, have them call True Blood at trial, and let the jury assess the credibility of his statement versus those of the Brumleys and Mascoros? So, what exactly did the jury believe about the circumstances of Donna's kidnapping at the bike scene? Powell laid out this fourth version at closing. Well, Philip Mascora was plenty mad, you can believe that, when someone had done this to his daughter. And he and his son jumped in their vehicle, and they went like the proverbial bat out of Hades. They took off, and you remember, he said when they hit the railroad track, he thought he was going to turn over. They went so fast it bounced over. This chase would have occurred immediately after the flashing incident. So, about 3.35 in Mascoro's timeline, or 3.45 in Powell's version. Mr. Mascoro came up here. He couldn't see him up there. He knows he wasn't going south. He knows he wasn't going northeast or west. He went back down Firebaugh, and he looked around. And he looked down these little roads, and you remember that the testimony was that, while these are straight lines on the map, those really aren't that straight in reality. And anyway... He goes along here, and he doesn't see them, and then he comes back. He doesn't see Clifton in the pickup, and he leaves. The family get together, and they get going. This is Powell's description of how the white truck escaped from Philo Mascoro during the chase. As Mascoro drove west along Firebaugh, he looked south down all of the Grove Roads, but couldn't see the truck, and eventually circled back around to Spruce and List. And you remember that the bicycle was found not right on this corner or not where it could be seen from Firebaugh, but it was found back in this way, out of the way. And I think it's reasonable for you to find from the evidence, I think you will infer from the evidence, that what happened is that when Clifton pulled out of here and left, he didn't want to get caught. And he was coming along here, and he was both trying to get away and at the same time his passions had not subdued. And when he turned down here, down this little grove road between the trees, he was getting out of the way. 
And of course, he wouldn't go straight down the list, back into the same trouble. But here was a convenient road, this little dirt drive that he could get out of the way, and so he slipped around here. This is Powell's explanation for how Mascaro missed seeing the white truck. It made a quick right on the Grove Road before it got back to List. This would have happened moments before Mascaro looked south from Firebaugh. So Powell argued that Mascaro just missed seeing the truck turn onto the bike scene road. Now, unfortunately, and again, heaven only knows why, but as fate would have it, about that time, Donna Jo Richmond was on her bicycle. Now, she's left her boyfriend's house. She's on her way home. She's in a hurry. She told her boyfriend she had to hurry, which was about, say, a quarter to four at the time. And she said she can get home in time. I think it's consistent with the facts, and I think you could find that her bike was coming along here, and his pickup was coming along here and turning. He was in a hurry, and she was in a hurry, and he ran her off the road. Her bicycle fell over. There's no evidence of physical contact between the bicycle and his pickup. But at that moment, he sees in his mind's eye an opportunity. He sees a very pretty little victim, a very pretty young girl. And he's still aroused, sexual, and all hot to trot, as they say in the colloquial. And he stops. And of course, the girl, not knowing what's in his mind, has been run off the road. Her bicycle's tipped over. He grabs her either in his hurry to get out and get to her or in an ensuing struggle of some kind in the truck, his invoice book, thank God, his invoice book was found at the scene and then he took her away. At this point, the story takes a quantum leap, literally. Oscar is fleeing Moscoro sometime around 335 to 345, but as he makes the right turn onto the Grove Road, time has jumped 30 minutes into the future. It's 4.10, and Donna is just riding up to the bike scene. Even if you ignore Mascaro's 3.30 starting point and accept Powell's contention that it's more like 3.45 during the chase, that's still the exact same time Powell himself claimed that Donna left Don Lee's house, over four miles away. Was Donna in two places at the exact same time? Was Oscar a time traveler? If it was suddenly 4.10 during the kidnapping, how did Powell claim there was 30 minutes for the murder and cleanup? Did they time travel 30 minutes back into the past when they reached Neil Ranch? We're standing up screaming and waving our arms here, but Donahue didn't say a word. No objection, no request that it be stricken from the record, and no clarification for the jury. So, there were four timeline versions presented to the jury by Powell. Obviously, in the first version, Donna is kidnapped at the bike scene four minutes before she leaves Don Lee's house, and in the second version, it's seven minutes before she leaves Don's. Powell did not give a version where Donna arrived at the bike scene at 4.10, the 25 minutes it took Jerry Bird. The third version had Donna arrive at the bike scene at least 10 minutes early, at 4 o'clock, but that conflicted with Powell's first, second, and fourth versions, which placed the chase and kidnapping around 340. Powell kept shifting around a magical 30 minutes of non-existent extra time for the jury. This was critical because he needed it for the murder and cleanup. Basically, 
Powell told the jury that Donna was being murdered during the time she was riding from Donnelly's house towards home. He also impeached the Brumley's testimony that Beth arrived home at 3 o'clock and Gloria's testimony that the flashing occurred within minutes of 3.30. Powell's own closing statement placed Oscar both at Sequoia Field and in Woodlake at 3 o'clock, and Donna at Donnelly's and at the bike scene at 3.45. All of this was after TCSO had already coerced Carter to push Oscar's arrival home out to 4.45. The best case version of Powell's story would be 4.10, Donna arrives at bike scene and is kidnapped. 4.15, depart bike scene after wiping the bike invoice book and notepad of prints. 4.24, arrives Neil Ranch. 21-minute minimum drive to residence is 4.45. Presuming Carter's second statement of Oscar arriving home at 4.45, that leaves zero minutes for the suspect removing Donna's clothing in the vehicle, killing her, removing all trace of Donna, the crime in the groves from the vehicle, cleaning up himself, clothing and knife, wiping fingerprints off of Donna's shoes and placing them carefully on their soles off the road. If Oscar arrived home prior to 440, as both Carter and Oscar's daughters originally agreed, he could not have had time to drive the route, let alone commit the crimes. The reason that all of these versions seem weird, awkward, and forced is because the facts don't add up. The state box themselves into the narrative of the dropped invoice book, Brumley and Muscoro, before they understood the facts and witnesses that couldn't be changed. They tried, but they could never make everything fit. The Brumley's first statement on December 28, 1975, said the incident occurred at 3.30 p.m. Then, both 2 o'clock and between 2 and 3 p.m. in separate statements on December 31, 1975, and between 2.15 and 3.30 in Beth's statement on January 2, 1976. At trial, Beth and her mother settled on 3 o'clock. At 2 o'clock, Oscar was still waiting on Garden Street for Bill Rose, and between 2.50 and 3 p.m., he was being watched by Gene Owens, 23 minutes away from Woodlake. Powell offered his explanation of how Oscar could be at two places at the same time. We had the Brumling girl we've talked about. Remember, we put her mother on. By the way, no one was looking at their watch up there, and I'm sure we can all play games with the times. And I'll give you some examples of what I believe the time to be. But in any event, the Brumley girl didn't look at her watch. She was frightened by it. There's no reason why she should stop and check the time. Her mother estimated or guesstimated or whatever the figure of speech is. In any event, it was her recollection that it was shortly after 3 o'clock that Beth came home. So that gives you a pretty good idea of when it was the defendant over there exposed himself to Beth Brumley. First, Powell just made up a non-existent event there. There was never any accusation that anyone exposed himself to Beth Brumley. Second, Powell impeached the testimony of his own witnesses. Third, it still doesn't add up. Mrs. Brumley said that the latest time Beth got home was 3.15, but Powell said that Oscar couldn't have arrived in Woodlake before 3.23. 
Good Lord, why didn't Donahue present this timeline to the jury? DCSO also wed themselves to Mascoro because they were so desperate to place Oscar near Donna's bike. They went all in on her as a witness on the morning of the 27th, before Donna's body was found and before they really understood the time issues. Mascoro was listening to the radio and put the flashing incident very close to 3.30. Given the drive time from Woodlake, the soonest Powell could get Oscar there was 3.40. However, that left 30 minutes before Donna arrived at the bike scene. That's how Powell ended up trying to sell the jury on Donna's kidnapping occurring four to seven minutes prior to her even leaving Don Lee's house, miles away, and 29 minutes before she could have even arrived at the scene. By far and away, the biggest mistake TCSO made was not waiting to investigate Oscar's alibi and betting the entire case on the invoice book. Oscar didn't know Donna, her family, or the fact that the area kids used that shortcut to ride home. Also, the invoice book was kept on the dashboard, so even if Oscar had known where to dump Donna's bike, that wouldn't explain how the book fell out when the bike was being removed from the back of the truck. TCSO forced the narrative of the kidnapping at the bike scene, and that locked them in to 410. The simple answer was scene staging and planted evidence. Every police investigation textbook has at least one chapter on these topics. While Jody Angelo had both an AA and BA in police sciences and forensics, Bert worked his way up from ranch manager for Donna's grandparents to reserve officer, Farmersville PD, and finally sergeant for TCSO. He had never investigated a homicide more complicated than a DV murder or a bar fight. We've looked at his murder cases from 1964 to 1975. It's really interesting to contrast Bird's reaction with that of Sacramento investigator Shelby. After the second EAR attack on July 17, 1976, Shelby made some notes on the case. One thing that puzzled him were the empty Coors beer cans found on the back patio and kitchen counter, both wiped of prints. Shelby wrote to himself, The beer cans found in the kitchen. Is the suspect a beer drinker? Is this a put-on? Some type of charade? Shelby also had a totally different reaction than Bird when the AAR tried to frame the next-door neighbor in the October 9, 1976 attack. Everything seemed to line up perfectly. The EAR stolen jewelry in the neighbor's house, similar physical build and type, and the EAR warning to the victim that he lived nearby. However, rather than arrest the neighbor, Shelby put him under surveillance and was able to clear him in the next DAR attack. VPD Vaughn and Sacramento Shelby both figured out D'Angelo's red herring and framing behavior quickly, and it kept them from chasing their own tails or arresting innocent men. Bird bought it hook, line, and sinker. Beyond all of the timeline and obvious framing issues, somehow the jury managed to overlook the fact that Donna was found on the same road where she was last seen, Marinette and that there were no witnesses who saw her make the ride through town to the bike scene. They also seemed happy to ignore the fact that TCSO did not question one single person who was working on Neil Ranch on December 26, 1975. Not one. At least that's what they told the jury. 
We can't believe that Bird did not try to find a ranch worker to say he saw Oscar's truck on Neil Ranch that afternoon. Bird either did not write about those interviews or the reports were never produced to the defense. Did anyone on Neil Ranch report a police car or D'Angelo? All we know is that they obviously didn't report seeing Oscar. The terrible state narrative was grossly compounded by the fact that TCSO did not interview the alibi witnesses Donahue had given them until after jury selection was underway in June 1976. Three witnesses were particularly disastrous for them. Frank Thomas, who sold the freezer, not only insisted that he looked at his watch when the purchasers arrived, but that P.I. Pettyjohn had known about the comment he made about the guys being late. Thomas gave them Brent Trueblood's name as someone who was there during the freezer loading, and Trueblood clearly placed Oscar across the street working during the freezer loading and picked his photo from a lineup. Finally, Bill Irwin, who was buying the freezer, tried to help TCSO refute Thomas's time estimate, but he ended up placing his arrival at the Thomas house at the exact same time he was dropping his wife off at the hospital in Tulare. At trial, he tried to rehabilitate his story, but the drive time from Tulare, plus the stop to pick up another freezer and then drive to the Thomas house, placed him well past 2.30, the time Bill Rose and his investors arrived at Garden Street. Rose was walking around outside the house for 30 minutes between 2.30 and 3 o'clock and did not see the two trucks arrive or load the freezer, and the guys did not see Rose. That pushed it back after 3 p.m. Additionally, Irwin's wife testified that her husband did not return to pick her up at the hospital until 4.15, an hour after she was discharged. That's consistent with Thomas's testimony that Irwin left Garden Street around 3.45. If Irwin left Garden Street at 2.30, like he claimed at trial, why wasn't he at the hospital by 3, already waiting for his wife when she was discharged at 3.10? Why did he get there 65 minutes later? There was no explanation. Oscar's actual timeline, which was supported by Owens, Thomas, Trueblood, and indirectly Rose, was 3 o'clock, left Roberts Owens for Garden Street. 3.20, arrived Garden Street, back truck up walkway to the front door, saw two pickups arrive, and heard Thomas say, it's about time you got here. 3.20 to 3.45, blew out the gas line with the air compressor for service restoration on the following Monday, removed greasy stove parts and loaded them into the truck, wearing his J.C. Penney Big Mac coveralls described by Trueblood and taken into evidence by TCSO during the search warrant. 3.45 to 4.30, drove to North Visalia for the cheapest gas, then home, removed air compressor and tools from the truck bed and locked them in the garage. 4.30 to 4.50, made phone calls, there was no phone at Garden Street, regarding status of power and gas hookups expected on Monday, and took medication for his knee. 4.50, departed in family car for Dula's house down the road. Clifton never returned to his truck and was never alone after he arrived at the doulas shortly before five. He did not change clothes, take a shower, or put anything in the washing machine. Brent Trueblood went outside and watched the freezer and bike loading from the Thomas's driveway. He seemed equally fascinated by the loading and watching Oscar work across the street. He was sure that Oscar's truck was still there when the freezer guys left, but was gone a short time later when he went home. 
Trueblood mentioned that his friend, Johnny Gerber, might have seen Oscar, and Gerber's mother later testified at a hearing that Johnny told an unknown investigator that he had seen Oscar and talked to him about who might have been breaking out windows on the Rose house. Those statements are attached in the gallery on our website and Facebook page. Instead of hearing from Trueblood and Gerber, the jury just heard Powell repeatedly say nobody saw Oscar during the freezer loading. So clearly, Oscar was lying. D.A. Ward included that same statement in his report. Both Powell and Ward knew for certain that Oscar was seen on Garden Street during the freezer loading, and neither felt any moral or legal obligation to tell the truth. Apparently, they thought their oaths to uphold truth and justice were just words, not a code of conduct. All of this sounds complicated, but that's only because that's the way Powell and Ward have hidden the true simplicity of the case. The defense and state agreed that Oscar was at the Roberts house and Gene Owens saw him leave at about 3 o'clock. Oscar said he drove back to Garden Street until 3.45, got gas, and went home. Oscar's story is supported by statements and testimony of Owens, Frank Thomas, and Brent Trueblood. Owens had met Oscar once, and Thomas and Trueblood had never met Oscar and didn't know any party in the case. All three gave consistent, correct statements never changing a single detail or wavering in their certainty. Also, all three witnesses were consistent with each other and the times matched the drive times and events perfectly. Carter's first statement matched the statements and testimony of Oscar's two daughters and fit with the time that Oscar arrived at the Doolis house. On the other hand, Powell's stories were literally impossible, barring time travel, teleportation, and or cloning. Brumley was home for at least 10 minutes before Oscar could have arrived in Woodlake. And he would have still been 10 minutes to the north when Mascoro first saw the man in the truck at 3.30 on list. Donna was still five minutes away from leaving Don Lee's when Oscar could have reached the bike scene, a full 30 minutes prior to Donna's arrival there. In the version most favorable to the state, Oscar would have had zero minutes for the murder cleanup, and placing Donna's shoes off the road on their soles. Powell's best case is zero. Somehow, Oscar would have done all of that without getting any mud, blood, hairs, or fibers on his clothing or under his fingernails. Additionally, the dirt in and under his truck was eliminated as coming from either the grove or bike scenes, and the white paint transfer on Donna's bike did not come from his truck. It came from a police vehicle. Nothing from Donna was found in Oscar's truck, on him, or on his clothing. The boots TCSO claimed matched one heel print, tested negative for blood, and had no mud or dirt on them. There was absolutely no explanation for the unidentified notepad found with Donna's bike, or the fact that the invoice book, notepad, Donna's bike, and numerous bottles and cans found nearby had all been wiped of fingerprints. Did Brumley and Mascoro even see the same suspect? One man had glasses, and one did not. Why did Mascoro describe a man in black-framed glasses with a turtleneck and light pants? Why did she say the back of the truck was plain white? Why did her father say that the truck was a Dodge with round taillights? Oscar's truck had black Ford lettering on the back and tall rectangular taillights. Why did Mascoro say that she saw the man flashing her at 3.30 when Oscar could not have arrived there before 3.40? Why didn't TCSO process the flashing scene for tire prints, footprints, and possible ejaculate? 
Why did Brumley give five or six different times for the incident, varying by 90 minutes? How could she see Oscar at 3.23 when she was home at 3 o'clock? How can her identification be trusted when she admitted seeing Oscar's photo in the newspaper as a murder suspect and being shown a photo of Oscar's truck prior to viewing a photo lineup? How can Mosquero's identification be trusted when the sheriff was photographed showing her Oscar's booking photo prior to the lineup? Did the jury consider the fact that Mr. Brumley was the vice principal at Donna's school and Mascora worked for Donna's grandparents? And both witnesses may have wanted to help TCSO get a conviction. Honestly, we don't know if the Brumley or Mascaro incidents happened at all, happened the way they were described, occurred at the stated times, or even took place on 122675. We can't find a point that is consistent and reliable enough to give any surety. It makes zero sense that Oscar would leave the Roberts and drive to Brumley Street in Woodlake to find a girl. It's a huge distance and an unlikely location. Why would he then go to an orange grove on the edge of Exeter? Absolutely none of Powell's versions of events make sense. The times are impossible, the witnesses are close to the Richmond family, identifications were tainted, and the suspects don't even match each other, let alone Oscar and his truck. 